So today is a monster day in the scriptures. We're going to be going through Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46. Uh, the main reason that we're going through this many scriptures is because the stories are connected. This is essentially one day of Jesus being asked a series of questions and then Jesus asking a follow-up question. So we are gonna, we're going to read through the whole thing. We're going to go through the whole thing. And it has, um, I think, opportunity for us to learn things along the way. But the big picture that I want to encourage you to just be paying attention to is, is actually on two sides. Side number one is the question asker. Uh, you'll see the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees' disciples, different groups asking Jesus questions, essentially trying to catch him in some kind of a pickle, some kind of a, a catch so that Jesus is not able to answer the question favorably, ultimately to get people to, to turn against him. Uh, I, I do know that some of us, from time to time, we do this. We like to try and peg Jesus or Christianity with some unanswerable question so that we don't have to uh, follow it, so that we don't have to give our whole lives to it. Maybe we ask those questions, we challenge, because we don't want to give ourselves completely to Christianity. So want to see it from the question asker's perspective and learn what we can learn from that. And we're also going to look at it from Jesus' perspective, from how he answers and responds to these people, how he uses the scriptures and engages people at that level. Uh, and we're going to talk about what, it, what it's like for us to engage the world with uh, the challenges, with the questions that are being asked of us. Jesus has asked a cultural question, he's asked a practical theological question, and he's asked a scriptural question, and he answers each one of those in ways that teach us how to handle uh, life in those situations. So that's essentially what we're going to dive into. Let's pray, and we'll dig into the Word this morning. Father, thank you for uh, giving us your Word, for giving us an opportunity to study it. I pray that today would be um, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Lord, that your Word would be put to work in our hearts even as I'm praying now, Lord, you would be prompting people for what they, um, what they need from this, from this scripture, how you can shape their heart, shape their life, shape them as disciples of you, or even show them your grace and show them your kindness, Lord. So I pray that you would use our time in your word today. Teach us, illuminate us, show us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we actually read through the whole scripture, I want to make sure that you know where we're at. And if you feel like we're going through the context of Matthew a lot, it's because it really does matter. It, it impacts how we receive uh, the things that are going on. So we are in, right now, Matthew chapter 22 is a part of the final week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth before he is raised from the dead. All right? Jesus has been spending most of his time in ministry. Uh, the, the Gospels represent three years of Jesus' life and ministry, and most of that has been spent up in northern Israel in a region called Galilee, all around the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, where there's tons of little fishing villages scattered all over the place and agricultural people out in the countryside. And Jesus has been going around these areas, healing, teaching, presenting the gospel of the kingdom, and people are, have heard about him and have flooded into that region to hear Jesus teach, to be healed by him, and to be a part of what's going on. 
In this particular year, Passover is happening, and Jesus has just built up a ministry in such a way that many people are with him, and they all start to go towards Jerusalem for the Passover. This is different, though. As Jesus is going towards Jerusalem, he communicates with his disciples, we're going there, and I'm going to be arrested and mocked and killed on the cross. I'll be raised again on the third day. The Pharisees are going to have a part in it, and the Romans are going to have a part in it. Jesus tells his disciples this. This is the purpose of our trip to Jerusalem right now is ultimately for me to die and be raised from the dead. And this is a, uh, an important thing because Jesus is going in knowing his ultimate destiny, his ultimate uh, outcome right now is his own death. And so as he teaches, as he leads, as he tells people the things that he's telling them, he has that in his mind. And so these words are potent. They're powerful. What he says is essentially saying, all right, I'm about to be out of here. I want you guys to hear this. So we get to this final week, and we talked a few weeks ago about the Sunday, what's known as Palm Sunday. Jesus uh, is going up to Jerusalem, and as he gets to the Mount of Olives and gets ready to go down and into the city, he calls on his disciples to go and get him a donkey. That donkey is brought to him, and he rides it into Jerusalem, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that says the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus is telling everybody that's out there, the whole crowd, everybody that's around him, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. The chosen one, the Savior, the Son of David, all of those things. You may have been speculating, speculate no longer. I am that person, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He doesn't say all those words, but that is the significance of that action. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah. So he rides in, and as he's riding in, people are laying their cloaks on the ground, laying palm branches on the ground, praising him with psalms that are about the Messiah, and Jesus is receiving their worship. Again, profound statements. I am the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. You can do this. You can worship me. It is okay. He goes into Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple and he starts turning over tables and kicking out money changers and driving people away. And you start to think, wow, he really doesn't like money changers. And it's kind of like, uh, never mind, I was going to mention a very old Steve Martin movie. He hates these cans. Uh, he's turning over the tables and that's not even the point at all. You guys, anybody see the jerk? No? <laughs> all right, anyways. Uh, it's not about the money changers. It's not about the business that's going on. We talked about how that would be back the very next day. Jesus is making a statement about the temple and Israel itself. We know that because the next day, Jesus goes on his way back to the temple and he finds a fig tree that has no fruit on it. He was hungry. He wanted a fig, no fig, and he curses the tree and it withers up and dies. And you're like, man, Jesus gets really grumpy when he's hungry, but that is not the point of that story either. The withered fig tree is a prophetic picture from many different Old Testament books about Israel having abandoned their covenant and relationship with God and God's presence having left Israel. Jesus is demonstrating by his actions in the temple and by the relationship with that fig tree, it's a weird way of putting it, that Israel is empty of their relationship with God. There's no fruit and it's withered up on the vine. Closed out covenant, so to speak. So Jesus does that, and then he starts to go back to the temple and preach in parables to the Pharisees and disciples and anybody else that will listen. 
And he starts telling stories about the king and his kingdom and the son and how the son is mistreated. And he's talking to the Pharisees saying essentially to them, you have the Messiah in front of you and you don't realize it and you are mistreating him and you're ultimately going to kill him. He's saying that point blank to the Pharisees. So much so that uh, we talked last week about a wedding feast and that wedding feast, Jesus is saying, you were the invited guests and when the servants came out to call you in, you rejected them saying, I've got to go deal with my farm, deal with my business or you flat out killed the servants and said, I'm not coming to the wedding. And what that did as Jesus communicates is that the hardness of Israel to respond to the Messiah's invitation actually opened the door for the invitation to go to everybody, which was God's plan from the beginning. So this is one of those crazy moments where you actually have God's, God using the hardness of Israel's heart to open up the door to the entire world to experience God's grace. Now the Gentiles would experience the invitation to the wedding feast through the hardness of the Jews' hearts. Jesus is communicating this. And now we get to our, our place today. The Pharisees have not been happy with Jesus. The Sadducees have not been happy with Jesus. And each of them tried to challenge Jesus and get him stuck. See, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place because they want to get rid of Jesus. He is uh, taking all their authority, taking all their power. If what he says is true, then everything about the life that they've built is going to have to change. And they're not really comfortable with that change, so they are resisting Jesus. Anybody ever been in that category before? Not really comfortable with all the change, so you resist Jesus so you don't have to change. That is the exact place that the Pharisees are in right now. They don't want what Jesus is bringing. Even though they say they want the Messiah, they have a different picture in their heads of what that means. So Jesus is going to talk to them some more as they ask him questions. And that's the text that we're going to be in today. So this is a long section. I'm going to read through the whole thing and then we'll go through it. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Doesn't beat around the bush. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> All right. So three different challenges, and then Jesus turns it around and challenges them. And we're going to talk through each of these things. One cultural, one practical theology, and one scriptural in the questions that are being asked. Um, the first question you see Matthew comments on it. He writes about how the Pharisees went away to figure out how to entangle Jesus, how to trap him. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been involved in like a, a trapping conversation before. I, I talked to a couple from the church uh, that works down in the, the film industry, and they shared that there's a current trapping conversation. There's a that you get asked, uh, what do you think about the LGBT community as a, uh, as a Christian? And if you answer one way, then you get put into one category and one camp. And if you answer another category, then you get put in another camp and another category. And from that point forward, they know you're a Christian. You're dealt with by your camp. And that's essentially, you just get pegged in your answer. So there's, and there's no good answer, honestly. That, that, that's what they said. It's like you could answer one way. You could try and abstain. You could try and walk away from the conversation. None of it works. It is designed to get you to... Uh, to put yourself into a category. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. Jesus, step into a category. They ask him a question about taxes. Now here's the issue. Israel is uh, a nation, but they are oppressed or uh, overthrown by Rome. But Rome has kind of let them operate for the most part. But they're not a sovereign nation. They're not a nation in and of themselves. And with the exception of about 80 to 120 years in their history, there's been an 800-year run of Israel being ruled by somebody else, and they're tired of it. They are done with it. That's why the Messiah was such a picture to them of freedom. They thought they were going to be made a sovereign nation by this Messiah. This was a huge thing. So Rome has said, all right, Israel, we'll let you go about your business. You just have to pay your tax. And so it's a major hot-button issue in Israel. What do we do with taxes? Here is the loaded question. If Jesus answers, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jews get really discouraged and frustrated because they think that the Messiah is going to say, no, let's, uh, let's form an insurrection. Let's throw out Rome from our land. And Jesus saying, abide by the taxes would actually separate him out from the Jews. If Jesus answers, uh, and the, Rome, the Romans would be fine with him. If he says, pay their taxes, the Romans are like, hey, <laughs> this guy's good in our book. 
If Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, the Jews get excited about him. He is forming a, a rebellion. This is a good thing. The Romans arrest him, and they either put him away for a while or they kill him just to try and squell the rebellion. So that's the, the catch that they're trying to get Jesus in. The problem with their strategy is that it's Jesus that they're asking, and he's smarter than them. So Jesus responds to them. First of all, he calls them hypocrites. Uh, you're trying to catch me saying something that will get me thrown out of your city. When the whole time, the issue is that we're supposed to be following Yahweh. If it's Yahweh's plan, follow Yahweh. Don't just try and do your own thing. He just calls them out on the carpet right there, calls them hypocrites and say, stop. So he says this, give me a denarius, and they, they give him one. He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, Caesar's. And he says to them, and this is an important sentence, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All right. You might start to think, okay, so Jesus is telling us that we have to pay taxes, we have to be a part of our society, and then we also have to be Christians, and we have to tithe, and we have to give our, give our gifts and offerings. That is not the statement that Jesus is making, just so that you know. Now, Paul will take Jesus' statement about taxes, and he will build off of it, and there is a, a direction that we need to go. We'll talk about that. But Jesus is answering a specific question to a specific group of people because he's been pegged in that moment, and he says the answer in a really important way. He says, all right, if this coin is Caesar's, give it to Caesar. But what is God's? Everything. You believe he's the creator, right? You believe he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? You believe he's the author and perfecter of faith, right? You believe he is the ruler over all creation. So let's just put this thing in its perspective. Here's how Paul comments on the same thing. He says this in Romans 13, 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So let's talk about this. Before we get into Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees, the Bible's position on taxes is essentially this. You are a part of two kingdoms. You are part of the kingdom of God, which is your primary citizenship, but you are also a part of the country that you live in, the society, the culture, the people that are around you. You're called to be a part of that. Both Jesus and Paul, when challenged on the issue, say, be a part of society. Pay your taxes. You're not to live in rebellion. You're not to run away from this whole thing. You're not to, you know, just leave the society. You're actually to engage the society, but it's in a context. That context is that God is the ultimate ruler and authority over all things. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. At the same time, Jesus is calling on people to give their taxes, but he's also dropping Caesar down a massive notch. So Caesar, on those coins, uh, the coin basically says, in God we trust, kind of like ours do, except Caesar is the God that he's talking about. He puts on the coin that you need to praise Caesar as God. And so when Jesus is holding up that coin, it is a huge statement that he's looking at this saying, okay, yeah, you can give Caesar his little coin, but let's make sure that you give God what belongs to him. There is a ruler over all things that has our allegiance, that has our citizenship, 
And while we participate in this world, we know that things are about much, much, much more than this world. So as Paul talks about it and tells us that uh, the authorities are ministers of God, he's talking about how even the, the culture that we live in, the political system that we live in, is a part of how God is overseeing his world. But it is his world. He is the king of kings, the lord of lords. He is over all and through all and in all. Now, this doesn't mean that Donald Trump is a prophet. It doesn't mean that Barack Obama was a prophet, that when they speak, they are speaking the words of God or anything like that. It has nothing to do with that under any circumstance. doesn't mean that Kim Jong-un is a prophet. That's not how this goes. But God is saying you are a part of a society, and God is actually using that society to communicate something bigger. That God is over all and through all and in all. So pay your taxes, Jesus is saying. But God is ruler, Jesus is saying. This is why this silences them. They didn't expect an answer that would get both groups really excited. The Romans, honestly, at that point, are not really caring whether the Jews believe that Caesar is God or not God. They've allowed them to continue their temple practices and believing in Yahweh. So they could care less if the Jews at that moment are saying Yahweh is a bigger God than Caesar they just want their taxes. That's kind of their job. So Jesus has said, pay your taxes, but he said, make sure that you understand that Yahweh is bigger than Caesar, which is a huge thing, and the Jews would have been very satisfied with that answer, minus the Pharisees, because they wanted something different from that conversation. All right, then it's the Sadducees. The Sadducees come to him, and they're asking a practical theology question. Now, a little bit about the Sadducees. We've mentioned them before. They are a group of priests that were pro-Roman. They actually liked the Roman influence. They had kind of uh, enjoyed the relationship that they had with Rome. They got power and authority through uh, the Roman occupation. So they're Jewish priests, but they're Roman agents, essentially. Not liked, really, by either group, but they have authority because of the position that they're in. That's the Sadducees. Even the Pharisees don't like the Sadducees. We see in the book of Acts, they get into big fights. In fact, when Paul got into trouble, he just kind of threw a little question in the room and the Pharisees and the Sadducees start fighting and he just kind of slips right out the back door. It's really nice. Anyhow, so the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, that's what that's called. And they're coming to Jesus with a question about the resurrection and how it's all going to play out. And so they ask a really ridiculous question. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in this situation at school, in the workplace, or whatever, late night dorm conversation, when somebody's just throwing out the craziest theological, hypothetical question you could ever think of. Uh, one of the famous ones is, could God create a rock so big he couldn't lift it? Right? Oh, yeah, I really got you on that one, right? Because if God could make it, then he can make it. But if he can't lift it, then he's limited, right? Or the Homer Simpson version, could God create a donut so big he couldn't eat it? Oh, all right, gotcha. That's what the Sadducees are doing in this moment. They're taking the, the very limited concept of leveret marriage from the Old Testament, which is God's provision for lineage. Hey, if a, if a brother dies and he doesn't have any kids, brother number two is supposed to step into that marriage, take over, and have kids, and those kids are actually to the lineage credit of the older brother in that situation. And this was because 
God was very concerned about family line, and he was bringing Israel up in that way. It was an important piece of Israel being a legacy society or a society that had a future tied to its past, okay? And the, the Sadducees say, all right, so let me throw a crazy situation out, out at you. Seven brothers all marry the same gal. None of them have kids. In the resurrection, who gets her? Who gets the wife? Who gets the lineage? Who gets all this stuff? Jesus answers them with this statement. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And here's ultimately what Jesus does to this question. He will answer the question. But he starts with the premise, you are missing the entire point of what it means to be part of God's family. If you're so caught up in these little, just crazy, wild, nuanced, like concept ideas, if you're so uh, entrenched in those, then you've missed the point of the scriptures and of the power of God completely. We'll see later, Paul will tell Timothy to tell people to have nothing to do with old wives' tales. And you're like, oh, that's interesting that that made it into the scriptures. But he's essentially saying, don't get caught up in these wild theories, these crazy stories, these things that take you away from the heart and the power of God. They are ridiculous. And Jesus is saying, that's what you guys are doing right now. I'll answer your question, but just know that you've completely missed the scriptures and you've completely missed the power of God. So he goes on to answer this. He says, uh, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I don't know if this crushes your romantic idea of marriage. Maybe you thought or even said in your wedding vows that you would be married to that person forever. That is not how marriage works. Uh, that is a Mormon idea that, that you are married forever, but that is not a Christian concept in heaven. There is not marriage. There's not childbearing in eternity in God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. We have a different purpose. We fall into a different category at that point. Jesus is teaching them that is not what the scriptures teach. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus knows that the Sadducees love the first five books of the Bible. They love it. So he goes to the first five books of the Bible. He goes to Exodus and says, you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The Sadducees would be nodding their heads. Do you believe that God is the God of the living or the God of the dead? They would believe that God is the God of the living. So why would God identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if there was no resurrection? In one sentence, Jesus obliterates this group because they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So here's what I want to encourage you with on this, just before we move on. I know I say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know what Christianity is to you. I don't know what church is to you. But when Jesus takes issues of practical theology that are hypothetical to the nth degree and he moves them to the side, he says, you're missing the point. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That should communicate something to you about what God wants you to be experiencing as a part of his family. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but I just, I guess I want to ask the question, how many of you have experienced the power of God? 
Maybe when you came to faith and you actually, you felt God's presence taking over your life, you could experience that God was now with you when he was not previously with you. Maybe as you shared your faith with somebody and they came to faith in Jesus, you got to see the power of God come alive as God was at work in somebody else. You could see it in their face. You could see it in their eyes. You could see it in their life. You could see the power of God at work. Or maybe you've been praying with some people and you knew, you knew in that moment that God was inhabiting the prayers of his people that those prayers were filled with the presence of God and it was a powerful moment. Or you're reading the scriptures and the words are just leaping off the page and you're seeing things and God is speaking to you and filling your life with the joy of his word. Or you've worshiped God and in a moment of singing, you realize I am joining with the saints around the world, all time, all places, praising Yahweh in this moment and you experience the power of God. That's what Jesus wants you to experience as a part of his family. This is not a history lesson. This is not a set of moral obligations to build your life on. This is the power of God coming alive in his people. And if that's not a part of your story, then you're missing the point of being a follower of Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there right now saying, well, how do I get the power of God? Like, how do I, how do I experience that? What does that look like? And the Bible teaches us that the power of God comes through his spirit. That, that, that the spirit of God makes us alive together with Jesus Christ. We can talk about this more later, and it probably should have been the entire, the entire message today because that's an important message. But there's a lot of time that we'll have to dig into that. But honestly, if you're sitting there right now saying, I believe this stuff, but I want to experience more of the power of God, that is a, that's a conversation to have even this week. Talk to your community group. Talk to the person that brought you. Talk to somebody. Pray with them with our prayer teams. Pray with them. I want to experience the power of God. That's a... That's, that's an okay statement to ask because Jesus wants you to experience that. All right? Okay, let's move on. Next up, uh, the great commandment. So the Pharisees heard that they had silenced, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So this is like a, uh, this is a good and a bad moment, right? All right, the Pharisees hated the Sadducees. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard that Jesus embarrassed the Sadducees. They had to give a little fist pump and then go over to them and say, all right, let's work together on this one. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the, the moment here is these guys hear that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and so they gathered all of them together and started ideating what they could do with Jesus. And so a lawyer from among them says, all right, well, let's ask him this. I don't fully understand why this is the question that they decided to ask Jesus. It's sort of a theological softball, right? It's kind of like these guys just saying, here you go, Jesus see what you do with that. And Jesus is like, all right, here we go. Like, that's kind of the moment that's happening here. I don't get it. But at the same time, Jesus uses the moment to completely, again, completely upend Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the, the lawyer says, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
Now that right, ne- right there is the absolute right answer. This is like, it's an objective question with an objective right answer in the minds of all of these people. Let's see what Jesus answers. Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. He goes to what is known as the Shema. All right, the Shema is a set of scriptures that Hebrew people would speak, would recite every single morning of their life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He he references that very specific thing. Okay, Jesus answered it correctly. That's the right answer to the question of the greatest commandment. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus took what should have been one single great commandment and he brought a second one in that was unexpected or would not have been the entirety of what they were thinking Jesus was going to do with that question. So let's talk about this for just a moment. They say, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. He brings in the second element of this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at the very core of everything that Jesus has said to the Pharisees up to this point is, you are empty, whitewashed tombs. Your faith is empty because it is not manifesting in the grace of God being given to all those around you. You stand out there fasting and wailing in the streets just so that you can get the attention of people. You give offerings, but not so that the temple can be built up or so that the poor can be ministered to. You give offerings because you want people to see you putting money in the bucket. You are hypocrites to the very core. You have missed the point completely of what it looks like to follow God. So you have faith, but you have no works. Jesus is essentially saying you have, let's put it in quotes, loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. Uh, James comments on this. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That is the message that Jesus is giving with these two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's the thing. If that love doesn't produce a love for your neighbor, then it is not a genuine love for God. Let's camp here for just a moment. To love God, to say, yes, Jesus, I hear you, I see what you're saying, I believe your story, I want what you have for me, but to not let that love start to pour out of you into the people around you is to completely miss the point of what it means to be part of God's family. To receive forgiveness and not give forgiveness is to completely miss the point 
of being a part of God's family. To receive the welcoming hospitality of the King of Kings and not welcome others into the family is to completely miss the point of being a follower of Jesus. So when Jesus puts these two commands together and he says, love God, and that needs to manifest itself in loving the people around you, he is trying to make sure that you understand that there's no separating those two things. If you're going to love God, it's going to flow through your life and, and impact the way that you treat each other. And if it's not impacting the way that you're treating each other, then it's not a legitimate love for God. Now I wanna pull back for just a moment because sometimes we, you know, we get a little grumpy we don't deal with people really well. We have a bad day. We kind of get frustrated. We, we chip at other people. We get angry and, and maybe even full-blown cut people off relationally. And so then we might start to think, well, if I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, does that mean that I have no real faith? And I, I just want to, we, we, can, we can honestly get into that space, but I, throughout the scriptures, God has told us that he understands process. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling that he is growing us up into maturity, into the image of Christ, that he is actually shaping and molding and transforming us into Jesus, shows us that he understands the process. So it's not necessarily that if today you are not actively loving everybody in the same way that God has loved you, then you have no real faith. But it is a big picture thing for you to step back and say, you can't try and separate the two. You can't, from your own posture and approach, say, well, I, I love God, but I, I don't want that to impact the way that I live my life. You can't say that I love God, but I actually want to continue being a shady businessman and just make, make money however I can make money. Or that I love God, and I'm going to continue being a teacher that shows favorites in my classroom, and I'm going to treat some kids really well and other kids like trash. Or I'm going to say that I love Jesus, but I'm not going to show grace and kindness and forgiveness to people because... They don't deserve it. You can't separate those two things. That's not possible the way that Jesus is preaching his gospel. Those two things are one and the same. To love God and to receive his love is going to manifest in how you treat other people or you're not receiving the true love of God. So Jesus says this to the Pharisees. There's no answer that given. It's just put out there. But when the Pharisees, or I guess when they're all gathered together, it says, Jesus says, well, while I've got you guys here, let me ask you a question. While I have your attention, let's start to try and understand this whole Messiah thing. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Now, just to, to remind you guys, sometimes we get confused. Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is the anointed one, the chosen one, uh, the, the one that God promised. So when we're saying Jesus Christ, uh, we are saying Jesus Messiah, Jesus anointed one, Jesus fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy about God's way of reducing sin to rubble and resurrecting humanity to its original form. That's the last, that's the name right there. It's a long name. We don't, so that's why we just say Christ. It's kind of like summarizes that whole thing, Jesus Christ. So what do you think about the Christ, Jesus says? Whose son is he? When Jews would talk about a son, they're talking about lineage. They're talking about 
historical stuff. The son of David is a phrase in 2 Samuel, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, multiple places. The son of David is a reference to the Messiah. So Jesus is kind of throwing them a softball right back. Whose son is the Messiah? And they answer it, the son of David. That would have been the absolute obvious answer, no questions asked, 100%. If they didn't say that, something would have been way off. They say the son of David. So then Jesus asks a follow-up. He says, how is it then that David, in the spirit, quick note, Jesus' understanding is that when David was writing the Psalms or when the Old Testament was being written, the spirit was authoring that. This is the word of God. It is 100% God's word to us. He's saying that the Spirit authored through David these words. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You guys have this picture in your mind that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. And you think that he's going to be this king that throws the Roman government out of Israel, that he's going to rescue you from your current circumstances. They have reduced the picture of the Messiah to being something temporal and not something eternal. Even though they said that he would sit on an eternal throne, they had the wrong idea of the Messiah. So Jesus is saying, you're looking for a son of David. Well, let me ask you this. How is it that the son of David is simultaneously David's Lord? How is that possible? What Jesus is doing is saying, you are looking for a man, but what you're missing is that that man is going to be God. David looked at this Messiah and called him Lord. I don't know where your brain goes when you hear this. One of my favorite places is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just a little bit later in John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Guys, Jesus is looking at at the Pharisees and saying, I am. He's saying, I am, period. But he's saying, I am the story. I am the promised one. I am from before the foundations of the the earth. I am the one that the Spirit, through David, called Lord over a thousand years ago that you have been waiting for that is going to fulfill the promises of God. I am what you have been looking for. And they have nothing to say to that. They decide not to ask him any more questions. These are four stories. And uh, tried to figure out how to, how to wrap this message up. In fact, even this morning, I was talking with Kevin and Bert. Um, Kevin leads Anthem Camarillo. Bert leads Anthem Ventura. And I told him I thought my conclusion was really lame. I had written one up, done the study, done the prep, wrote a conclusion. It wasn't right. I 
kind of wanted to look at you and just see what you needed to hear from this passage. What is it about Jesus this morning that needs to speak to you? I think the question that I want to ask you is what is Jesus to you? I think for some of you guys, he is, he's Lord, but you're still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. I gave him my life. Don't really know where to go from there. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees and Sadducees and Israel in the temple, again, it's hard for us to even picture how powerful that moment was. Jesus was looking at them and he's saying, guys, let's, let's just talk about the point for just a moment. What does God want from you? He wants you to experience the fullness of him, his power, his word. He wants that all for you. If Jesus to you is just a, just a part, just a thing, just a, you know, a guiding light to kind of make sure that you're on the right track and not doing ultra-wicked things or... Uh, a place to meet other good people and do other good things or be a Christian because that's what you were raised up in and you don't really know anything else. If Jesus is any of those things, he's looking at you this morning and he's saying, it is way bigger than that. I'm so much more than that. And I want you to know, I want you to know what I have for you today. Uh, Let me just... (laughs) Let me just read you a a prayer from Ephesians. I might cry. I cry when I read this prayer almost every time. I'm just kind of warning you guys. This is Paul's prayer as he's reflecting on this very thing. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want the core of you to be strengthened with my power. I want you to be walking through this life in a supernatural way, not just you, flesh and bones, figuring it out. That's lame, that's done, we're over that. I want you in the spirit to be powered and compelled through this life with me present on you, with you, for you today and tomorrow and every day. I want that. I want you to be strengthened with power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, your entire identity is built from the love of God, knowing that you're loved and there's nothing that's gonna take that away. Done, over. There is no other category that you will fall into ever in the history of ever. You are loved by God. You are rooted and grounded in that and you can take that to the bank. That's yours forever. You have that. that you may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's more, one second. Here's the question. I asked you, what do you, what do you want? What do you hear? Build up with all the fullness of God 
is the story. Jesus told the Sadducees, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I want you to experience the full power of God, all that he has for you, all that God is, all that he wants. He wants to shower upon you, to lavish you with, to fill you up, that you would walk by the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, experience life in the Spirit, knowing that God is with you always. And that whatever you face, God's saying to you that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they they comfort me. There's more. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's not much that I can say except that I just don't want you to settle. I don't want you to settle for less than what God has for you. And I don't mean that in like a, you know, health and wealth, prosperity, God's going to give you the, all the desires of your heart. That's not what we're talking about here. This, this is way bigger than that. I'm talking about not settling for a life that has not lived in the power and the presence of God. He's saying it's yours. I have it for you. Today, tomorrow, every day of your life, I have it for you. You can float through this life, not levitating, but you can just, you can walk through this life with God's presence with you every moment of every day. When you're discouraged, he can lift you up. When you're confused, he can set you straight. When you are depressed and discouraged, he can breathe life into you. When you're anxious, he can take those fears and put them on himself and hold them and say, those are mine. Those are mine. Jesus is walking with you every step of the way. And I don't know how much we're grabbing onto that. I don't know how much we are living in that as our life of Christianity. And I want that for you. I want that for all of us. Would you guys come up? Um, We don't do this all the time, but I'm just going to ask, if you are... If you want to live your life in the power and the presence of God, if that to you sounds like the life that you want to live. I know that it may sound too big and too ambiguous, but I'm just going to put this out there. If you're saying today, I want that to define my life, just kind of come and stand up here. Just start filling the space up here. We're just going to pray for you. If that's what you want, just walk on up. That can be now. You don't have to wait.
These guys are going <clears> to <throat> sing over us this morning. Um, may not be a ton of participation. You guys may just be blessing us and singing. Uh, Devin, if we could maybe just kind of knock it down a couple of notches. Um, just while you're here and you want the power and the presence of God to be your life, just open your hands up and, and while we sing, this will take a little while. We're just going to walk through you. A couple of the elders and leaders are just going to walk through and just put a hand on your shoulder and just, just pray for you that this would be um, that this would be a day that's marked in your journey that even looking back from 10 years ahead or 20 years ahead that, that there would be a moment where you where you said, Jesus, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to uh, just kind of do the church thing, do the Christian thing. I want all of the fullness of the power and the presence of my King to go with me through this life. That's what we're going to pray over you. We don't have an official prayer team, so I'm just going to ask anybody that's maybe after you get prayed for, if you just want to join in. Like I said, it'll take a while. Maybe after you get prayed for, you can take communion and, and go to your seat so there's room for other people to, to kind of make their way forward. This is an important moment. To say yes to, to what God wants for you is an important moment. And that's what I believe is happening this morning, is that you, with your hands open, in a moment of worship and devotion, are saying, Jesus, I want what you have, what you offer. I want to experience that today. Let's take some time, worship and pray. Just be patient. <clears throat>